Hi, everyone. Just a reminder that this show is not legal advice, trading advice, financial advice, or personal advice. Enjoy the show, and thank you very much. This show is sponsored by whenmoon.co, the one-stop shop for all your crypto-related news. And also by the Veris Foundation, making solutions on the blockchain to tackle hospital administrative costs. Yo, yo, welcome to Crypto 101, the average consumer's guide to cryptocurrency. This is Matthew Aaron, and today we're going to continue with the seven-step guide to cryptocurrency. This is security. And for that, we are very thankful to have Taylor Monahan, founder of My Crypto, to come back on and talk security with us, and Danny Salem, the founder of Decryptionary. And we're going to go through all kinds of different aspects of crypto security, from wallets to making yourself safe to restoring your wallets, backing up your wallets, and a lot of other things. So enjoy this conversation between the three of us. But before that, please go to Crypto101Podcast.com. That's Crypto101Podcast.com. And there, you can send us an email. You can become a patron. You can go to that big old button that says tax and get $101 off your crypto tax preparation this year. And they also do other taxes. Go to the bottom of the page and find the Facebook icon become a member of our Facebook community. There, people are waiting to help you break down the barriers to getting into cryptocurrency. And most importantly, please go to iTunes and rate us and subscribe to us. It helps us stay on top of the pack. Finally, while you're on iTunes, subscribing to Crypto 101 and rating us, search for ICO 101. ICO 101 is Crypto 101's sister podcast. There, just to rate and keep you informed about ICOs. So check them out too. Thank you very much, and we will see you after the show. Yo, welcome to Crypto 101. This is Matthew Aaron, and today we're sitting with Danny from Decryptionary. Danny, what's up, man? Hey, Matt. Thanks for having me back, man. Man, you're always welcome. And you keep saying having you back. I think you almost live here anymore. I know. It's good. It's good. I, I really enjoy contributing. Cool, man, because we love having you. And today we're sitting with Taylor Monahan, co-founder of My Ethereum Wallet and founder of My Crypto. Hey, Taylor. Hello. How are you guys today? Doing great. Excellent. Thank you for asking. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> I'm excited to be here as well, by the way. Oh, cool. <laughs> Um, we're excited to have you. Actually, we're a little starstruck. We, we see you more in the news than <laughs> Donald Trump lately. Oh, yeah. You need to filter your Twitter feed or whatever for the time being to avoid the drama. That's what, <laughs> At least that's what I did with Trump. <laughs> <laughs> I just didn't even follow him. I, he doesn't get my time. <laughs> yeah, it's a good call. It's a good call. It's like a sanity keeper, like those Twitter and Facebook filters. Yes, exactly. Today, you're coming back on. You're going to tell us all about security in cryptocurrency and on the blockchain. Isn't that correct? Yes, absolutely. Awesome. So, Taylor, last time we had you on, we were chatting a little bit about your background and how you've worked with so many different wallets and crypto companies. Now we wanted to kind of dig into that and see what else you could share with people. We might touch a little bit on some of the things I asked before, but try to breeze past those. And uh, here's my first question. Everything is for Johnny, by the way, because Johnny is the one who doesn't know anything. Of course. I remember this. Okay, good. <laughs> so let's compare online banking security with crypto security. 
Johnny sees that online banking is so swift and easy, he just does username and password. Why is online banking so much easier for him than crypto? Um, so with online banking and most things that you actually interact with in the world, right, whether it's Facebook or Twitter or your email or whatever, you're usually logging in with your username and password. And the reason that things act like this is because they're all relying on these centralized servers. So you'll have Facebook servers or Twitter servers or your bank's servers. And when you log in, you're basically pinging the server and you're like, hey, I want to log in. Here's my email. And the server's like, okay, well, tell me your password. And you say, hey, okay, cool. Here's my password. And then the bank checks within their servers and makes sure that, yes, indeed, the password matches the email. And then if you have two-factor on, that's an additional piece of information, which, again, is still on these centralized servers. With cryptocurrency, because there's no centralized servers doing this authentication, this back-and-forth conversation like, what's your username, what's your password? Okay, yes, this is you, I can approve you. Because that doesn't exist on the blockchain, you basically have to sort of be your own server. You have to be your own bank. You have to be your own everything. And so instead of having these third parties, you're responsible and you're the one that's providing the sort of core piece of data in order to sign these transactions and send them to the blockchain, which essentially is sort of how banking and stuff works at a really core low level, but also just the way the blockchain works in general, because it is all decentralized, you know, it's just different. So with mobile banking, where you're basically telling the bank that you would like to send X amount of dollars to X person, or you want to pay your credit card bill or whatever, instead of doing that, you're basically broadcasting this, that information to the whole world. So you'll say, hey, I want to send this much ETH to this person. Here's the transaction data. And you just sort of like throw it out there to the world. And anyone who's listening, that's like the miners or people running full nodes, picks that up and is like, okay, hey, look at this person wants to broadcast it. Okay, they have enough money in their account. Okay, yes, we can broadcast this and we're going to transfer the money from one place to another. Whereas in a bank, you know, there's a lot of extra steps that sort of happen on the back end. Like they'll go ahead and check and see if your account has enough money and they'll go ahead and actually send the transaction for you. So that's a lot of times like if you go on your bank, your mobile banking app, say, and you want to send, you know, $1,000, you know, to Johnny or whatever for some work he did. If you're doing that maybe at midnight on a Sunday, the bank may not actually send it until, you know, 3 p.m. on Monday. Mm -hmm. And the reason for that is because it's like a centralized service. They have to go through their own checks and balances. They have to go through and make sure that everything's done properly. And then they are the one that actually initializes the transaction. You're only initializing sort of the request for it. And on the blockchain, like when you're sending a transaction, like that's it. There's nobody that's going to check your work for you. Once you broadcast right. that to the world, if it's a valid transaction, it's going to get sent. So those are some of the core differences. So it sounds like the main difference, if you were to simplify it, is banking handles a lot of it for you. Whereas with crypto, you have a lot more power and you can do a lot more, but you have to manage all of that. Mm -hmm, exactly. And that's okay. why, you know, services like Coinbase, right? You can still log in with your username and password. But also, you know, sometimes you request a withdrawal from Coinbase and maybe it doesn't come through until tomorrow afternoon or something. 
And that's the reason for that as well, is that same thing as with a bank, you know, Coinbase has their own internal checks and balances. So when you deposit into your Coinbase or withdraw from your Coinbase, it goes through its own internal system. So it's recognizing the transactions, checking the transaction, it's aligning the wallet address that you sent to or sent from to your personal account and so forth. Right. So you touched a little bit on Coinbase right there. How comfortable should people be with letting Coinbase handle all of their account information? So that's really a personal preference. You know, Coinbase and Gemini are both really great, reputable companies that take a lot of steps to both be legal and secure and up to date with all the latest, you know, whether it's like updating their technology or also just like staying up to date on the regulatory environment, right, in the United States, especially. So when I talk to like a brand new user, I usually tell them like staying on Coinbase and Gemini for the time being is perfectly fine you know, start small when you're moving to, you know, a wallet that's in your control, start small. However, it's always good to keep in mind that these are centralized services. There are downsides to them. You know, they have to comply with know your customer and the anti-money laundering laws. If you do something that's not legal for whatever reason, you are at risk for getting your account frozen. And obviously with other exchanges that may not be as reputable or may not be as up to date on the legal side of things or compliant applying 100% legally, there's additional risks. So maybe it's a brand new exchange or, you know, there's a lot of these sort of scammier exchanges out there. Those are the ones that we typically worry about. And those are the ones that you'll hear about. Usually it's about once a month or once every other month getting hacked or getting in trouble with the law or not processing withdrawals or, you know, some of those bad things. Right. So it definitely sounds like Johnny needs to do his own research when opening up an account with exchanges and all these things. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. You you know, I think one thing as part of security, I mean, we always talk about, say, wallets and hardware wallets and online wallets and all these different things, which we're going to go into in a little bit. But one aspect of security that isn't talked about a lot is human error. And I know from my own self, I am very prone to human error, just glossing over, say, the last digit of an address of a wallet by cut and copy or sending it to the wrong person because I spaced out and or maybe I'm, I have my both screens open on my computer and watching Star Trek on one side and sending it to somebody on another. If this happened to a bank, if this happened on online banking, and like you said before, if you maybe schedule a payment on Friday, it wasn't, wouldn't be released until Monday, you have a window to say, hey, bank, could you please cancel this? Or I sent it wrong or my credit card was charged and this wasn't me. What protection is there for human error in crypto? Almost none. So <laughs> that's scary. That's yeah, it's terrifying. And that's what, you know, it's an excellent reminder that cryptocurrency is incredibly new. You know, it's high risk for a number of reasons, but this is one of them. And it's one of the only things in this world that sort of acts like this. So it's one of the only things in the world where you can't say recover your password. It's one of the only things in the world where you're directly interacting with the blockchain or this decentralized ledger where you're in full control. But it's also one of the only things in this world where if you do something wrong, like say send to a, an incorrect address, there's not a lot you can do to get it back, you know, unless you do it from an exchange and you happen to notice and you happen to get a hold of your customer support early enough, you know, or some exchanges do provide like a cancel button. But right. once transactions on that blockchain, 
there's, you know, one of the benefits of the blockchain is that it's immutable. So there's no way to just be like, oops, undo anymore. And that's a really new concept. And even established users in the space, you know, sometimes tend to forget that this is really the only thing in the world where if you do something wrong, you know, potentially all your money's gone. And that's terrifying. And this is why, you know, I tell new users that start small and take your time and really understand it. And why I'm not a huge proponent of telling brand new people in the space to like get off Coinbase or Gemini. You know, I remind people that they should be careful with exchanges and they should be aware that they're using a centralized service. But sort of the downsides of an exchange is that yes, it can be hacked or yes, it could be, you know, potentially taken offline by the government or yes, you're relying on them. You're trusting this third party to give you your money. But, you know, there are downsides to controlling your own keys and controlling your own money. And those downsides are that if you mistype that address or if you lose your password or you lose your private key, your money's also gone. And so ideally, when someone joins this space, you know, they're going to start on these centralized services that make it really easy and are more familiar. And then slowly over time, as they get more comfortable and they dive deeper into the systems and understand the blockchain more and practice with small amounts, then they can, you know, start moving to just centralized services and and being in full control of their funds. Right. And I just want to expand on this a little bit more. And I know this is going a little bit off topic, but I just want your personal opinion. I know you're in the crypto space. I know you have my crypto, which secures cryptocurrency and and, and holds it on the blockchain and a great interface and amazing product. But doesn't that detour you from cryptocurrency? Isn't that like the one thing that goes, maybe this won't work? I mean, everybody's like crypto, crypto, crypto. I know you're in the space. I have a podcast, you know, dedicated to cryptocurrency. But is there any one point where you just go, maybe this isn't the future? (laughs) That's a really good question. Uh, I've never been asked that before. I'm going to be brutally fucking honest here with you guys. (laughs) Please. There are moments, there are moments over the past year where we get a series of emails or even a single email where it is just so obvious that we have not successfully helped this person understand the risks of the blockchain or even understand what they need to do. Like we have just failed at our core. (laughs) And and I say it like that because um, I try to keep this mindset, you know, that we do fail, right? Like that in an ideal perfect world, the product that we created would never have anyone be confused ever. Mm -hmm. Now, when it's 3 a.m. and you're really tired, it's a little bit harder to say we failed at educating this person or we failed at helping them understand the blockchain a lot easier to say, oh my God, the entire world is composed of complete (laughs) morons. We're screwed. The blockchain is never going to be a thing. What were we thinking? It's, you know, that's definitely a thought that's crossed my head. Luckily, you know, this sort of thought process, it's not a pervasive one. In right. My it's restricted to 3 a.m. <laughs> right. You know, and especially like, so when we have a new support person come on board, it's a little like the whatever the steps of grieving, you know, there's like seven steps of like grief where it's like anger and like blaming other people. And then eventually <laughs> you get to like acceptance. Right. That sort of like cycle happens with our support team. Every new member that comes on board because they are like super excited and then, you know, this terrible thing happens to these people where they lose their money or they lose their private key. You know, their initial reaction may be anger or blame or mm-hmm. these more negative, just negative energy, negative thoughts. And then, you know, as a team, we really have to like keep that in mind as we onboard new support people and then also help them 
get past that and realize, okay, we can't control everyone's actions, but what can we do to make a difference? What can we do to improve how different types of people learn about the blockchain? What can we do to make people's experience better so that they don't lose their money? And so, you know, me personally, like, yes, I, I definitely have the thought sometimes like this is way too hard for people. And I think there's a long way to go until we get to that where it's just so easy that anyone can do it without, you know, a lot of handholding. Right. But, you know, until then, it's mostly just trying to turn negative thoughts into positive ones and then also taking some responsibility for, you know, not necessarily responsibility for when people lose their money, but trying to be better so that less people lose their money in the future. Nice sidestep. I, I liked it. That was a great question, Matt. Yeah, I like that question a lot. No, I've never <laughs> been asked that before. <laughs> We are in both two different sides of the crypto world. And you said an amazing thing that sometimes you get emails or you get like a streak of emails where you're just like, why am I even doing this? In podcasting, you know, sometimes I get the emails and it says, you know, Matthew, you said the wrong thing or you had somebody on that, you know, I think is a scammer and it goes on and on and on, you know, because maybe we have somebody doesn't like it or the project or what have you. And then you're just thinking to yourself, like, why am I doing this? <laughs> yeah. Why am I doing this? What did I do to deserve this? Yeah. <laughs> so you just have to like rechannel that to be like the sort of the good out of it or the actionable out of those like kind of hate emails. Mm-hmm. And sometimes there's nothing, right? Like sometimes someone's just like a hateful person and you just have to, you know, be like, okay, that's your opinion and move on. But a lot of times, especially with the really long winded ones, there is something of value in there. Yeah, for sure. Once you get past the anger and the the name calling and those sorts of things. Yeah, for sure. I think one of the best things you said was in our last, last interview that actually stuck by me and it's continuing to carry me through the next, you know, months and probably years is that everybody in the space are not experts because the space is always changing. You know, it's just this space, it just it moves so freaking fast. There's so much that's brand new that doesn't exist in in the world that we're used to. And it's really good to keep in mind. And that's why I do like I still do spend time in the support box because I think it's important that I interact with people and I interact with new users. And I never forget that even though I may be an expert or even though something that I do, I think it's the right choice, whether that's a UI change or updating messaging on the site or sort of like more overarching product decisions. It's good to not live in that echo chamber, right? It's good not to live in your own, like I'm the best and I did something that I think is good. It's good to have that feedback constantly and that reminder that not everyone is an expert. Not everyone thinks like me. Not everyone understands the words that I say. And that's not necessarily a bad thing that, you know, recognizing and addressing it is a good thing. Right. Right. So I'm going to take this back to wallets. Now, Johnny's confused with the various types of wallets. He's got hardware, desktop, paper, online. He's got tools like MyCrypto and MetaMask. He's heard of Thin versus Core, Full Node, Electrum, QT, Without spending two hours explaining all of this to Johnny, because he's just not that bright right now, can you explain how the major wallets work? That's a big question. Yeah. So let's start with paper wallets. A paper wallet, especially when you're on my crypto and you're invited to print out your paper wallet, it's going to have your private key on it. And with a paper wallet, it's just this raw private key. So this is this long string of letters and numbers. And this is the key to your account. You don't need a password with it. You don't need a username with it. It's just this single string of characters. And the reason that we don't show you the encrypted private key on your paper wallet is that we're assuming that you're going to keep this paper safe. 
meaning that you're not going to like drop it on the ground or keep it in your wallet. Like you should keep it in a safe place within your home. And we're also assuming that you may not access this for a year or two years or three years or five years or whatever. And the reality is, is that the risk of a robber coming to your house and stealing your paper wallet. Yeah. Much, much lower than you forgetting your password over the next year or two years or three years or whatever. Right. right. And let's talk about some of the words I used while talking about that. Um, so you have your private key. That's the string of characters. It's the single piece of information that gives you access to your account and allows you to send money. And then we can encrypt that. And then when we encrypt it, that's an encrypted private key. Then you need to provide both the encrypted private key and the password. And and encrypted so, just means hiding it behind a password, right? Right, exactly. So it's like really complicated math and it's cryptography and it's all these things. But essentially, it'll turn that string of characters into a different string of characters by sort of adding the password to it. You go back to your like math class, <laughs> you know, if you take A and you multiply it by B, you're going to get C. And then if you do C divided by B, you're going to get back to A. Mm -hmm. right. right. And so that's sort of at the most basic level how encryption works is that if C is your encrypted private key, your unencrypted private key times your password is your encrypted private key. And then in order to get back to your unencrypted private key, you sort of need to take the encrypted private key divided by the password, and that'll give you the unencrypted key. Makes sense. Uh, good. I thought that went well. <laughs> <laughs> like ABC shit. I don't know if that's in my head right, but it sounds good. That's like, yeah, technically speaking, there's a lot more happening on the math side than that, but it's a really like sort of easy way to understand it. Um, What's the difference between a hardware wallet and a desktop wallet? So, okay. So you have an encrypted private key. So then these are sort of the two different ways that you can have the actual key and your desktop wallet your my crypto any sort of software interface that you have that's going to be doing the math for these keys whether it's encrypted or unencrypted and that is like the client that's going to be decrypting the key so that's like the software side of things is that you basically are going to provide let's say it's my crypto or a desktop wallet or whatever, you're providing it with some format of your key. And then it's going to do things with this key to sign your transaction or get your balance or whatever it is, right? Now, in the case of a hardware wallet, the hardware wallet actually has your key on the hardware device itself. And the key doesn't live anywhere else. It's never sent to your computer. It's never sent to your desktop application that you're using to interact with it. It stays on the hardware wallet. And when you first get a hardware wallet and set it up, it's going to ask you to write down these 24 words. And you should. You should write these down in case you ever lose your hardware wallet or drop it in the toilet or whatever. But these 24 words are another version of at the core, your private key. So just like earlier, I was talking about how you have your unencrypted key, and then you have your encrypted key. You also have these 24 words, which is usually referred to as like a seed phrase. And or mnemonics, right? Yeah, mnemonic phrase, seed phrase, backup phrase. All of those things usually are referring to these 24 words. Ooh, Johnny has a lot um, of questions about those words, by the way. But continue. <laughs> <laughs> the words basically just make it easier to write down. Because when you have a hardware wallet, especially, you never, ever, ever want to put these words onto a digital device. That means you don't want to take a picture of it with your phone. You don't want to type it into your computer. You want to handwrite it on the card that the box provides and keep that card really, really safe somewhere in case you ever lose your hardware device. 
And now a word from our sponsor, the Veras Foundation. When you visit a doctor or hospital, the total administrative expenses of getting paid for the services they provide is around 60 billion US dollars a year. This is called the claims process. This expense is due to insurers and physicians not trusting each other and keeping duplicate records and systems and providing no transparency in the process. Blockchains are most capable of solving these kinds of problems, problems that include trust, transparency, and the need for keeping good records. The Veris Foundation is a U.S.-based nonprofit with a team consisting of more than 200 years of experience in all aspects of the claims process and in the process of deploying smart contracts to support these claims processes. The Veris Foundation's pre-sale begins March 19th with a 20% bonus and full crowd sale begins April 2nd. So visit VerisFoundation.com, that's V-E-R-I-S Foundation.com for more information and or to register for the pre-sale. Now, back to the show. I'm going to go to this question now because it's relevant. And this is another really big question about the mnemonics. Oh, God. Where do these words come from? For, I mean, for example, I set up my, my Ledger Nano, right? Or maybe Johnny yeah. did, right? And, and it gave me 24 words. They seem like very common words. Some of them were repeated. Mm -hmm. But why are those words going to access my wallet? And if I lose the Ledger Nano, I can use these words to access it, correct? Right. And these words are actually a standard. So they're, it's a Bitcoin standard. So it's a BIP. Bitcoin improvement proposal or something. So there's a dictionary of words that smart developers years back came up with. And they actually come in all the languages. They come in like English, there's Chinese, oh, French. Yeah, there's a whole bunch of them. The words were chosen for being easy to remember, short, diverse. If you look at like the full dictionary word list, not a lot of words have similarities, right? So you don't have like dust and must and bust and trust, you know, they're diverse so that, you know, if you kind of miswrite. Hey guys, TiVo here to tell you about the Ufi video lock, a smart lock, a 2K camera and a doorbell all in one. That's right, three in one for triple the security. It's easy to install. All you need is a Phillips screwdriver, no drilling required. It gives you keyless entry, so no more fumbling your keys when you have your hands full coming back from the grocery store. No more worry about the kids losing a house key. No more worry about a guest losing the house key or forgetting the passcode on your door. And for Airbnbers, it's a no-brainer as you can change the passcode at will between renters. It has available fingerprint recognition and it has AI self-learning chips. So the more you use it, the more accurate it's going to be. You will have no anxiety with the battery charging. It is a rechargeable battery and it lasts around four months. But don't worry, when it's low, it'll give you plenty of weeks notice. And also, it always comes with a physical key as a backup. There's no monthly fee, unlike other brands that charge you a monthly fee to get your backup recordings. They're always recorded locally and you will always have access. Customer support for the Eufy Video Lock is 24-7, so you don't have to worry about any issues you have. And it comes with an 18-month warranty. What I love about this product is it is truly all-in-one with the three-in-one. You don't have to go out and buy multiple parts. It's all in this package with the Eufy Video Lock. So if you're interested in learning more, go on Amazon and search Eufy Video Lock. That's E-U-F-Y Video Lock or visit eufyofficial.com slash video lock. Again, that's E-U-F-Y Video Lock. Eufy Video Lock. Get complete control over your front door. This is the story of the one. 
As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try one of them a little bit you can usually figure out what word it actually should be rather than just be like every word in the dictionary right i mean we could talk about this all day how the words were chosen and and how the standard was implemented but basically the problem that they were trying to solve well one of the problems they were trying to solve was when you write down a private key so like if you go to my crypto and you don't print out that paper wallet but you write down the private key there's a lot of room for error so if you write yeah. down a B instead of an eight or an eight instead of a B and you just get one character wrong, that yeah, you'll actually, yeah, you're going to access a different account than the one that you thought that you were supposed to be accessing. And so one benefit of the words is one, they're words. So instead of writing down this random string of numbers, you can write down these words that your brain just picks up easier, right? Instead of being like B, F, 5, G, 2, whatever, your words just like, tonic or a wife or whatever the word is. Right. The other benefit is that there's a checksum. So a checksum basically is when you type in the entire string of words, if you get the order wrong or you replace one word with another, it'll usually tell you like, that's not right. You did mm -hmm. something wrong. Go back and check your work. That's beneficial because, you know, unlike a private key where if you do swap, like if you swap the order of two letters or you, you use a B instead of an eight, it won't tell you that. It'll just unlock a different wallet. What are the odds that my 24 words and I can mess them up and access Danny's wallet? Very, very low. And they're actually about the same as a private key. Oh, really? So, yeah. So wow. this is called entropy, which if anyone's interested in like learning more, just Google like entropy and cryptography or something. I'll send you links because we have some good articles on our knowledge base about this. But cool. I think 24 words is equivalent 256 bits of entropy, which is also the same as a private key. Okay. And then I think that if you have a 12 word phrase, which are common in like MetaMask, those have 128 bits of entropy. What that means, like what 128 bits of entropy means is that, God, how do I say this in a not super crazy, complicated way? I, I just looked at the dictionary and said <laughs> entropy is a lack of order or predictability. Right. It's like ensuring complete randomness. And it's like, I think this isn't really the definition of it, but it's a good way to think about it. The higher the number, the longer it's going to take to brute force. 
So most security things today, if it's a brand new implementation of something, is probably using 256 bits. But if it's, you know, 128 bits of entropy is still considered like really, really safe by experts because essentially I think like the famous line or whatever is that in order to brute force a data set that has 256 bits of entropy, like we'll need more energy than the world and the sun has at this point in time. Wow. Um, so it's That's a nice stat. The link I'll, I'll send you for your show notes, there's like some really awesome analogies to like the amount of grains of sand on earth and the amount of stars in the sky and stuff like that. Because the reality is, is that the data set we're working with, like the largeness of the numbers are actually like too large for humans to comprehend. But if it's a thousand monkeys so were writing at a, <laughs> a thousand typewriters, <laughs> sorry. Right? If a thousand monkeys are writing at a thousand typewriters, one key per second, then it would take them 10 bazillion, trillion, gazillion years to until they found like your private key. All right. The monkeys got to get to work sounds, then. That, that number sounds safe enough for me. Yeah. Because I had a really hard time sort of like fully grasping this. Like I think that human brains just aren't quite capable of fully grasping it. There has to be a way for someone to guess this, right? No, there's not like in, in a lot of the world security, like the government security and like the core infrastructure of the Internet, things like that. Those things are secured by these same sort of 128 or 256 bits of entropy. So the reality is, is that if someone does figure out it's called the collision, if anyone's interested, but how to find a collision for these keys or brute force the private keys, we're actually in a lot bigger trouble than like your personal cryptocurrency stash being stolen. It well, what a way to put it in perspective. Means, <laughs> yeah, it probably means that like the hackers are going to win and the governments are going to be taken down. And at that point, you know, the world's probably going to be operating on like whoever has like a car and gas and water and food rather than like who has these little bits of cryptocurrency in their wallets. Isn't, isn't that what happened with SHA-1 hashing algorithm? Yeah. It's like forced collisions? Right, exactly. So Google spent like a couple of years just trying to find a single collision. But yeah, they did after a number of years. Now, does that mean that they can like screw everyone and find collisions on demand? No, it just means that they did manage to find one collision and make mm. it happen. So it just means that that sort of cryptography that protocol is, you know, where nobody's going to implement like a new secure application or design a new protocol that is based on that Shaw because there's more secure ones available anyways today. It no. doesn't necessarily mean that the existing one is inherently insecure and we're all screwed if we're using it. It just means that moving forward, like we should use more secure ones. So I do have a question though, but these folks on the internet keep talking about quantum computers breaking it. Is that going to happen shortly? I mean, you never know. But again, like if quantum computers suddenly exist and are able to brute force things of this with this high of entropy and with this, you know, these high of security protocols and stuff like that, if they are able to do that, again, like your personal stash of cryptocurrency is kind of the least of the world's problems. Right. Yes. Like exactly. Now we're talking about like, you know, the nuclear codes and right. those sorts of things. Like those are really bad things that could happen if quantum computers suddenly existed tomorrow. But the reality is, is that it's more likely that just as everything in this world, right, the evolution is slow. And as um, we get closer and closer to having true quantum computers, we're also going to be upping the security mechanisms that we use to secure cryptocurrencies and the internet and our computers and stuff like that. So that when there are quantum computers, everyone's going to be on these specifications that are quantum resistant anyways. Right on. We steered way off of 
security <laughs> with wallets. <laughs> but I really love that. It was a great conversation because we were going to ask about mnemonics later anyways. It is so fucking interesting. So if people want to dive deeper, we have a lot of resources because I'm personally just really interested in it. I'm interested in this as well because, okay, so I did actually a paper on hashing algorithms and, you know, security. And that's why I asked about SHA-1 or whatever. Yeah, SHA-1. I looked it up. I think it was Yahoo that was using SHA-1 and that's how they got their hack. Is everybody said that, oh, a collision could be forced and they were encrypting all of their shit through SHA-1, if I'm um, correct with that. It's possible. I'm going to guess, though, it was probably MD5. Hmm. MD5 was cracked a lot longer ago. They're talking about this entropy word, 256 bits of entropy. And Bitcoin is using SHA-256, correct? Hashing algorithm. Um, yeah, it should be. Then we're looking at a level of difficulty that Bitcoin could, the blockchain of Bitcoin could possibly be hacked. If it is hacked, what do we do about it? Is Bitcoin done? It loses value? It's over? Or can you move it to a new hashing algorithm like, say, SHA-512? 512, sorry. Thank you. 512. I mean, I think, again, like, I think that the evolution of cracking these hashing algorithms and these sort of the really low, low level security protocols and how things work, you know, by the time that we get to that point in time where, yes, SHA-256 can be cracked, um, which will probably be at the same time that, like, quantum computers exist, um, and are actually really, really usable. I think that either Bitcoin won't exist at that point or will have upgraded to be a different security protocol or forked or I don't even know how that would work. That's an excellent question, but I can't answer that. It's just, it's not going to happen tomorrow. If it, if it happened tomorrow, yeah, Bitcoin would lose all its value and we'd all be done for, but it, we're probably looking like years out. What wallets do you prefer, Taylor? So I personally use a Ledger and a Trezor. I use both hardware wallets. I actually just ordered a KeepKey as well because I was very curious about what they're doing and how they're doing it. So maybe next time if I have it, I'll, I'll let you know how I think of it. But yeah, I use the hardware wallets. They're just so simple. Uh, the peace of mind is great. It makes it really easy to unlock via my crypto. And then, you know, I do have like some Bitcoin and stuff and it makes it really easy to access my Bitcoin as well via the Ledger Chrome app. So that's my personal preference. And that's what I would recommend to everyone. Say if you have more than a week's pay worth of cryptocurrency, then you should have a hardware wallet, period, end of conversation, especially considering that usually your crypto assets go up. So if you have a week's worth of pay of crypto right now, that could be three weeks worth of pay in a couple of weeks. And if you lose that, that sucks. So right. get a hardware wallet. I was watching a YouTube where you were talking about the future of crypto security. And the question was raised, do we need wallets? I think that the wallet, like I just wrote a big article on this and it's still a work in progress in my brain. So bear with me. Just like we were talking about earlier, how do normal people get into cryptocurrency and how do they use it successfully and how do we make it foolproof? Those are sort of the questions that when I look at our interface, you know, as simple as we've made it so far and as simple as we're going to continue to make it. I think the reality is, is that it has to be way easier, like a whole different level of ease. So I think what we're going to start seeing over the next few years is some really low level, like application level or SDK level, or even people are, are mentioning like hardware chip level key management. So mm -hmm. rather than having your wallet, as you think of it now, whether you think of a wallet as your hardware wallet or like your my crypto or your paper wallet or, or your MetaMask or whatever, 
number. It'll be something that's so just like low and, and the user doesn't really have to think about. And then instead of interacting with your wallet, you're more likely going to be interacting with the blockchain in different ways. So yeah, sometimes you're probably just going to want to send funds. But for most of like what the blockchain is being promised or is promising and the things that I get most excited about, you're probably going to be using different DAP interfaces like CryptoKitties or, you know, Golem or whatever, all these different projects that are going on right now. And you're not going to really want to deal with like, hey, I need to send this much money from this address to this address and let me make sure to keep my private key safe and et cetera, et cetera. You know, you're just going to want to say, hey, I want to, you know, I want to get a ride on this decentralized Uber or I want to rent a place on this decentralized Airbnb or like without me even doing anything, I want to, you know, share my computer space with someone or whatever. And mm -hmm. so that's what I'm thinking about right now. I think that the the interface itself is going to be slowly abstracted away to the point that the user never has, hopefully never has to like really deal with private keys unless they want to. So that's good for the future. But for now, Johnny still has to secure his accounts and mm -hmm. he's read about two-factor authentication long mm -hmm. passwords, how to avoid phishing. Can you give some highlights for Johnny and the listeners on that? Yeah, so for definitely two-factor authentication for anything that you can. So with my crypto, you can't do two-factor because you're in control. Like we don't have a server, but your Gmail, your Coinbase, your Facebook, your Skype, even those things that you don't really think about, just two-factor them. Just get in the habit of always, always, always turning on two-factor. This just reduces your risk of all sorts of things. So if, if someone's going after you, like a targeted attack to try to steal your cryptocurrency, they'll usually get into some like old email address that you've forgotten about. And from there, they'll figure out that they can reset your Amazon shopping password. And from there, they have your credit card information so they can go try to reset your Apple password and then et cetera, et cetera. So point is two-factor everything. Ideally, never store your keys on your computer or your phone store them like either uh, on a USB drive that you keep disconnected to your computer, a paper wallet that you have printed out or a hardware wallet. What about uh, like LastPass though? For the passwords for accounts that you have like two factor on, LastPass or 1Password or any of them are really, really good because it'll generate securely generate random passwords for you. Uh, it'll keep track of them for you. You can have different passwords for everything, which is a really good thing. But for your private keys, I would not recommend it just because, you know, LastPass is also a service that lives in the cloud. And so if your LastPass is hacked, then you know, they have all your passwords and your private keys and that's not good. So right. that's why, you know, the safest place to keep your keys, honestly, is like, is a physically, is a physical place that can't be hacked. Like that's what paper is really good at doing. Like a hacker cannot hack the piece of paper. The hacker can get into your phone and your photos that are automatically like uploaded to iCloud or whatever it's called these days. So don't take a picture of your paper wallet, keep them in a couple different locations. And then you know, like if any of your accounts are compromised or you get malware on your computer, it's still safe. So LastPass for everything password related, but not private keys, please. I have a question about when these hacks are happening, most of the time they're happening mm -hmm. on exchanges. And so they're going after like a, a currency. They're like, okay, we're going to hack Bittrex for your, the Bitcoin and we're going to get it all. Is there any history of people's wallets actually being hacked without actually having their private keys? And it seems as though if somebody's hacking, say, iCloud, what they're going to have is they're going to have a shit ton of data that they probably don't know what to do with. Is it actually a concern to say, even if my passwords or private keys are on the iCloud and I'm not the direct target, that somebody's actually going to know what to do with that? 
So it all depends, right? There's a lot of different style of hacks. So you have hacks where they're hacking the exchanges themselves and trying to get the hot wallets of the exchanges or even individual users' accounts on the exchanges. Then you have targeted attacks towards like a specific person. And these are usually more high profile people. So these are people that, you know, or have a lot of Twitter followers in the cryptocurrency space and people that they expect to have a lot of money. Mm-hmm. And this is why, you know, it's it's typically recommended that you don't talk about how much uh, cryptocurrency you have on public forums like Reddit or Bitcoin Talk or Twitter or whatever, because you can actually inadvertently make yourself a target that way. You know, and, and it's a lot easier for someone to hack you if they know if they can get your Reddit username, which is then linked to a Facebook, which is then linked to an email address. You know, it's a lot easier for them to like sort of go after you. And if you're talking about how much crypto you have then you're increasing your chances that someone's going to take the time to do that. Now, you know, for your average user who just doesn't have a lot of crypto is brand new, you know, as long as they're not running around, you know, talking about how much crypto they have, bragging about how rich they are and being insecure. So that means like not having two factor, using old passwords, that kind of stuff. You know, your average user is not going to get hit by one of these. What's more likely to happen to your average user is that they'll get taken by like a phishing site. So there's my Ether wallet phishing sites, my crypto phishing sites, Bitrix phishing sites, Coinbase phishing sites. There's um, fake airdrop websites, fake ICO websites. And usually these are the ones that will get the new users rather than a targeted attack. They're going to be, you know, promise you some free ETH or like that's the other one, the, the popular one on Twitter right now just asks you to send them the ETH. Right. Have you seen these? Yeah. No. So <laughs> yes. like. <laughs> yes, Danny, we have. <laughs> They're replying. There's like they pretend to be like Vitalik. So it'll be a Vitalik username that's like misspelled a little bit. There was like an Elon Musk one. There was um, a Coinbase one. Like there's all these different ones. And they basically say, hey, if you send like 0.1 ETH to this address, we'll send you 0.5 ETH in return. Oh, Uh, man. And it's such an old school scam. Like this is really, really an old school thing. And um, I'm not quite sure why it's so successful, but they've actually collected quite a bit of money. But it's the same thing, like use your common sense. That's another good piece of advice. Like trust your gut, (laughs) use your common sense. If someone were to walk up to you on the street and say, hey man, give me $10 right now, and then I'm gonna give you $50. You'd be like, fuck no. I'm not giving you $10, like it's so obvious. But somehow because it's Twitter and because it's cryptocurrency, people are like, oh sweet, no. money. Yeah, just like real life. If it's too good to be true, it probably is. Don't send random people money. They're not going to send you money in return. Really, truly, like they aren't. (laughs) I just keep thinking when you say stuff like like the old gags, you know, grandpa walks up to you and says, pull my finger and you still fall for it. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Or hey, what's that on your shirt? (laughs) And they they hit your nose and it's like, what? That's called bullying now. (laughs) <laughs> oh, it's, maybe that's the problem. People don't get bullied anymore, so they don't they don't become like immune to these sort of things. I don't know. Like when I see these Twitter ones, I just like look at them and I'm just like, this is really how do you not see this as a scam? And I think the answer is, is that we've been taught that to look out for these sorts of scams in real life or when it's pertaining to U.S. dollar or when the Nigerian prince emails you or whatever it is. But we haven't been taught uh, these sorts of scams happen on Twitter and they'll, they may reply directly to you. And the, the form of currency could not be USD and not involve uh, like a wire transfer. It could be ETH, you know, and for some reason, like people's brains just don't connect the two or something. I'm not quite sure. 
So I wanted to add a little bit to what you had mentioned on the question I asked you, which was security with two-factor authentication. I had read that text message two-factor authentication is bad, where they send you a number because your SIM card can basically get hacked and someone else mm -hmm. can take your SIM card. That's correct. So again, like these are, again, targeted attacks. So for your brand new average user, it's probably not something that's incredibly likely to happen, but it's still just a good habit to get into because like when I first started out in the crypto scene, I was a nobody. And now I am a target for attacks because people think that I have way more money than I do. Like, I don't try to hack me, guys. You're not going to get anything. Um, she already invested in Lambos. It's, it's gone already. It's spent. I don't know. I definitely don't have time to be trading as much as I enjoy watching the markets and stuff and listening to some of the silly trader talk. I just don't have time to. So if you like hack my exchange account, you're literally going to get nothing. So <laughs> anyways, my point is, is that it is a risk. You're relying on the customer service representative for your cell phone provider to not give that number to someone else. And if you want to see how good your cell phone provider is at securing you, you can call them like from your number, in fact, because usually what the, the hackers will do is they'll like spoof your phone number. So it'll look like you're calling and you just say, hey, like, here's my name. Don't give them like your pin or anything if you have that set up on your account and say, hey, I got a new device. I have like the IMEI numbers right here. Can you transfer my number? And see what they do. See what questions they ask you. See if they transfer it. And uh, if they do, then you're in trouble because literally they didn't verify your identity and anyone could pretend to be you and take your phone number. You know, once you do that, definitely ask your cell phone provider, hey, what are the additional things I can do to secure my account? Can I put a PIN number on it? A lot of people, you can put like a name of your phone or a lot of times in the, like the billing or the account info, there's like a place for a company name. Uh, and this is an optional field. So you can go into these fields and be like, never transfer this phone number anywhere or never, you know, give anyone any information over the phone. You can leave little messages for the customer support reps to hopefully not transfer your number. But at the end of the day, if someone really, really wants to get you, you're relying on a really, really, really minimum wage person, usually in a third world country to protect you. And that's just simply not something that that's not something that's going to happen. <laughs> Right. So just for anyone who's listening, if you don't want to use text messages, which we don't suggest, I like to use yeah. Authy. Um, some people mm -hmm. use Google Authenticator. I like Authy because it's you can put it on multiple devices and back it up and all that stuff. The other thing was phishing. I read that you should just basically bookmark websites and you use your bookmark to access it. That way you don't fall prey to phishing attacks. Yeah, that's an excellent one. The other one is that if you have MetaMask installed or you can install these other standalone Chrome extensions that we have, we have one's called the Ether Security Lookup and one's called Ether Address Lookup. One is for website URLs and then one is for Twitter usernames. I can link you these in the show notes as well. So they're both Chrome extensions and they'll basically warn you if you go to a malicious website, you know, so if you go to, to my crypto with a zero instead of an O or whatever the hell it is these days, it'll basically prevent you from going there, which is really, really helpful. And the blacklist actually contains a number of different websites. So it'll be fake ICO sites. It'll be fake Bittrex sites, fake Coinbase sites, fake. There's a whole buttload of them now and it's really, really cool. And it'll basically just hopefully prevent you from going there, even if you do accidentally click that link. Great. With hardware wallets and desktop wallets, can Johnny just download a new wallet on any computer and access it? Can he switch to any computer wherever he is, or is there a limit to that? Wherever you plug your hardware device in, it'll work. Um, there's about, no like limit or anything. 
How about desktop wallets, Jax or these other ones? So I think with, I'm not 100% sure. I think Jax uses like a QR code in order to, to put on multiple devices. The one thing to keep in mind with like a desktop wallet uh, like Jax is that if you have it, say, on your phone and on your shared family computer and your laptop and your old phone, you know, those are now four different places that, you know, if one of those devices is compromised, the account will be compromised on all the devices. So typically you want to limit the number of devices it's on just so that if one device is compromised, it's not going to, you know, screw you for all of right. them. But, you know, obviously it's a major convenience to have it on your phone and your your computer so right. you know just be mindful of that and for things like jacks as well you know one option is that you know the paper wallets or the hardware wallets that i was talking about earlier you know it's called like cold storage so this is where the majority of your funds are held this is kept super super securely and then you have a hot wallet like jacks or even my crypto or metamask that you maybe have just a fraction of your holdings there and this is for day-to-day -day use, whether it's, you know, you decide you want to get an ICO or you're sending people money or you're playing with dApps or whatever it is, uh, you can do so. And if something bad happens, you only lose a fraction of your funds, which is obviously a good thing. Yeah. I think the best advice I have in general for people is uh, just like keep reading and keep your eyes open. And, you know, if it's too good to be true, it probably is. Yeah, that's that's some great tips. I really appreciate you answering all those questions. I just want to say thank you very much for spending time with us again. And it's always a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for having me. This has been, again, such a blast. And I look forward to talking to you guys again soon. Right on. Fantastic. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of Crypto 101. And I want to say thank you, Taylor, for coming on the show again. And Danny, it's always a pleasure. Thank you, sir. And before we go, ApogeeCrypto.com. That's A-P-O-G-E-E Crypto.com. The best place to check your real-time prices. Also, thank you to WhenMoon.co. And finally, we'll see you on the next episode of Crypto 101, where we have a rant commentary about FUD in the marketplace. Thank you very much.
Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around. A watch she can wear every day for movement. Whether mom's into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, movement has something she'll love. And right now, you can save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with up to 50% off site-wide during Movement's Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.